Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. All right, welcome back, Matthew. It is good to be back on the microphones. It is good to be back talking about Dune, and I am excited for tonight, sir. We are going to be talking about some chapters. I'm going to tell you the chapters and uh, just as a reminder, so people know, although I'm sure they can see it in the title, this is going to be 16 through 18, chapters 16 through 18. Um, and 16 basically starts with the the words, greatness is a transitory experience. And then uh, we'll, we'll, we will be ending with, do you wrestle with dreams, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 16 through 18. And uh, here we go. Let's get to let's get to this wonderful dinner of royalty and rich people hanging out, hating every second of this uncomfortable ass dinner, <laughs> sticking each other with verbal barbs as often as they can. What a delightful time! Yes, this is this reminds me of every uh, 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 this this is the blueprint for every Vampire the Masquerade instance where you have a bunch of vampires from multiple clans sitting around a table politicking. This is this is the blueprint for every type of situation we see like this in film and in novels, and uh, and I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> Hit me. <laughs> it's dense, but it's I'm dense. It's it dense. Hit me with this uh, open. Yes, dude. I also really like this opener. Greatness is a transitory experience. It is never consistent. It depends in part upon the myth-making imagination of humankind. The person who experiences greatness must have a feeling for the myth he is in. He must reflect what is projected upon him, and he must have a strong sense of the sardonic. This is what uncouples him from belief in his own pretensions. The sardonic is all that permits him to move within himself. Without this quality, even occasional greatness will destroy a man. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by number one fan, absolutely <laughs> standing, Muad'Dib is Bay, Princess Urulan. Yes. Boy, what a interesting way to open up chapter 16. Absolutely. I, I just love this idea of leaning into the myth about you, but also being so being so aware of the fact that it is a myth, that it is that it is more than you and bigger than you, and it does it's not truthful for the individual you actually are. Like having to balance those those two almost contradictory ideas. And and not just the fact that you are part of the myth, but that meta knowledge of sort of understanding the myth you are in. I find exactly. that utterly fascinating. This idea of reflecting, as they say right in this chapter, what what is projected upon you, meaning what what is thought of you in this case. You don't even know. That's it, it's interesting. There's no when we think about celebrity, for example, we just imagine celebrity as people either there's three ways they think about it. They typically think uh, not much of an opinion I like or I dislike, and they really know nothing about them because it is all kind of myth. In a strange way, celebrity, especially movie stars, is myth because you're watching them engage in 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 nonsense. And I don't mean pretend. that. And I, it's pretend. I don't mean that in a negative way at all. It's pretend. No. You know, we're we're you and I are doing an entire podcast about a pretend world. It, but but that's my point. We where th- that understanding that which you are in and realizing what can be projected upon you to ensure that you don't get lost within it. Greatness right, will destroy exactly. a man, right? It's very awesome. You can't 
can't believe in your own myth too much. You have to understand that it is it is a belief projected upon you. Like that is, and that's interesting to think about the idea of of power working that way. Mm-hmm. That there, you know, power is a is an intangible thing. There's no such thing as power. It is almost an agreement to the people who you hold power over. They're agreeing to it. They are tacitly accepting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to kind of play into that idea of, of being the ruler, even though you know you're just a man like anybody else. Especially myth. Myth is so transcendental. You know, it's, you, 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 you have to be able to step outside of it and view it in a critical sense. Uh, thus, or, or you will be completely lost to it. <clears throat> Right, ah, it's good. I this, really like this one. This is uh, this is a great chapter. I really enjoyed reading this because I like political intrigue. I like that we have a lot of discussion here. We really learn a lot about some of our characters through dialogue, which isn't always easy to accomplish. But we have a great situation here. They're all in the in the hall of the Arakeen Great House. They have all gathered. It's uh, uh, darkly glistening oil paintings of the Duke, the bloody horned bull. Everything is present here. The chandeliers are hanging. Everyone's dressed to the nines. And, uh, and this is it. And it starts right away with, you would almost suggest, is this a social faux pas? Is this a mistake by Duke Leto? But he sees a housekeeper has explained for guests as they entered to dip their hands ceremoniously into a basin, slop several cups of water onto the floor, dry their hands on a towel, and fling the towel into the growing puddle at the door after the dinner beggars gathered to get the water squeezings from the towels. Seems utterly disrespectful <laughs> like mm. I, i'm like i remember the first you know time reading that paragraph i was like i i'm shocked that that is a custom on arrakis at all <laughs> that seems wild but of course right after that mm-hmm. you know the duke thoughts how typical of a harkonnen fief every degradation of the spirit that can be conceived and that to me yes. it's the perfect it's the perfect counter counter uh example to the way the atreides and the harkonnens approach power like the Harkonnens think they need to lord their power and crush people beneath it in order to even have that power at all. Right. Um, that, that they would display their, their richness of water <laughs> by throwing the little remnants of it to the beggars. Right. It's, I love the idea that the richness of water, it has such heavy meaning because it's not the richness of wealth. It's very different. It's the most nostalgic it's the most necessary thing that you can have as a person is water more so than food. You will dehydrate before you starve by far. And I'm sure the monetary value of it, as we're going to learn right away from this Lingar Butte character that we're about to be introduced to is, is quite lucrative. So it's lucrative in ness in absolutely necessary. And it's not even that there are, there's no gradations of necessary. It is completely necessary in equality for everyone. Roughly speaking, right. some people, roughly speaking, most, if not all people will consume about the same amount of water. It's not like housing. You could say, okay, this is very Spartan, but we'll survive. I don't have to live in the mansion. I don't need that. I do need this. There, that degradation in water does not exist, which is what makes this so powerful to have control over and why 
the way it's described in the Duke's thoughts as a degradation of spirit that you could possibly conceive would be to waste such a precious resource on Arrakis. Right. And flagrantly in front of people. Indeed. That's the other part. To make this show of it. Yeah. And in the repercussions of that, uh, another thing this book continues to do is to show you that when the Duke makes decisions, or anyone for that matter, that even if he's making the moral, what you would consider the moral choice to be good for the most amount of people, perhaps in this case, we see this woman dismayed, her leathery face displaying a twist of emotions, anger, because she was making money on that. She was figuring out how to survive. (laughs) <laughs> that's what's interesting about that he i i would totally agree that he makes the more moral choice here to to get rid of this this custom but the custom's been so long a part of this place that you can't just pluck it out without harming anything else like mm. you know little little ecosystems of survival have have formed around these customs and in, in, in his thoughts sort of drift back to caladan to the to the to the summers and the waves and he he again begins with the with the mortality he says he's felt the hold, he thinks, I guess is a better way to say it, how he's felt the cold hand of his own mortality. And why? From an old woman's greed. What do you think <laughs> about that? What do you think about that thought right there? I, I love it. I love even the way it's written. I mean, it's vague in the sense of there's no death in that image itself. But I think the way, you know, I think it even happens later in this chapter too, where he's like, that's a death thought. He catches himself <laughs> yes. thinking these, what he calls death thoughts, that they, that they are... Thoughts that consider the end of his life mm-hmm. and that imply like that 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 the world will go on without him. Um, it's it's very yeah, visually like, metaphorical, isn't it? This this idea of all of the beautiful open water and waves sort of being gone. It, it's gone, right. and in in all around you is death. It sound, it might sound a bit dramatic to say the sand is death, but when you compare it to the living things in the ocean and the water and everything else. That contrast from Caladan to Arrakis is a, to me, a visual metaphor of of it just being gone in them, and thus him considering his mortality in that moment. Yeah, yeah, it's dude. Intense. Also, not to play Monday morning movie director because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but you just put an image in my mind that I'm like secretly hoping is in the new Dune movie now because we talked about this on our past episodes. How how sharp and how sudden the transition from Caladan to Arrakis is. It's yes. just like, boom, next chapter, they're there. I would love for the transition in the movie to be them panning out to like rolling waves and winds of Caladan mm-hmm. to just hard cut of still hot sand. Yeah. Like just that harsh, you know, that harsh like uh, match cut. That would it, be so fucking cool. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see in the motion picture, it'll be interesting to see how that color palette is altered from Caladan to Arrakis. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> but um, he does think about that, and in, in, but, he, but he has to focus on the task at hand. A, a blaze is crackling, uh, people are gathering around, and the cast of characters is introduced, but not by name at first, Matthew. Instead, right. by, by what they do, a still, shoot, a still suit manufacturer from Carthag, an electronics equipment importer, a water shipper whose summer mansion was near his polar cap factory. And of course, a representative of the Guild Bank, lean and remote, that one, it says in parentheses. A dealer in replacement parts for spice mining equipment. A thin, hard-faced woman whose escort service for off-planet visitors reputedly operated as a cover for various smuggling, spying, and blackmail ops. That sounds like a novel in and of itself. 
<laughs> for real. An escort service full of spies and blackmailers. I love the description of these women. Untouchable sensuousness. <laughs> quite right, quite right. tempting, you would suggest. And I like that. I like how the Duke is like, ah, Jessica stands out among them, even, even when turned into uh, relatively plain clothes as far as he's concerned, right? It, it's, she's, not, she's not really going all out. <clears throat> right, right. But no, what I love about this too, it, it, there's, there's not too much focus on on Jessica and the Duke's relationship in mm. these chapters, you know. But there is, there is a subtext to the whole thing that I think adds a real note of tragedy, especially where we end here, sure. because of the, the closeness that we see between them and the fondness that the Duke has toward her that they don't even get to indulge. Like they, right now, as as we come to learn in this chapter. Uh, the Duke is still playing out that ploy of pretending essentially to be at odds with Jessica, to right. be suspecting her. Um, and she doesn't even realize it yet. So there is this coldness between them. And I love the line of, you know, when he sees her in this this dress with an earth brown band around her and those, you know, kind of fiery earthen colors, he realized she had done this to taunt him subtly, <laughs> a reproof against his recent pose of coldness. She was well aware that he liked her best in these shades, that he saw her as a rustling of warm colors. That's just great. It's such a small aside. And I'm like, it really goes to show that they have this like actually really profound, deep relationship. It's great. And it's so it's so tragic how much they don't get to to enjoy that. It's interesting because we know they are they do love each other and they are among each other, but it does take on an unrequited quality, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that's the right word. Uh we also have these moments of the Duke. Uh like you said, you, you mentioned this a, a second ago, the the Paul treating uh, everyone with a reserved nobility and how he'll wear the title well. That's the, that's the death thought he considered. He's considering yes. him, his son replacing him. I find this interesting in that we just, we just kind of talked about this in relation to Clash of Titan, which with Acrisius, sort of this idea like, well, if he has a son-in-law, then that means this guy's going to inherit the kingdom, which then, of course, means that's a death thought. Like, this is the guy taking over, so let me lock my daughter away kind of thing, right? But uh, for the first time, you're you're seeing a future without you. <laughs> in, indeed, yep, you're considering it. That's a that's a great way to say it. But we shift POVs to Paul, and one of the things I love about this moment is the way he the way he says the way it's described as seeing all their chattering faces. Paul was suddenly repelled by them. They were cheap masks locked on festering thoughts, of voices gabbling to drown out the loud silence in every breast. And he thinks how he's in a sour mood and he wonders what Gurney would say to that. But there's something I love about that. And I think part of it, it goes right from him considering, he's looking at his dad standing in the doorway, this great man. And then he sees all these people because he knows what is weighing on his father's conscience. He knows what Mohayim has told him. He understands instinctively that something is amiss here. He probably has a grasp on the the limited time he has with his father and right and in in and honestly he doesn't have much time beyond this to be frank and he is i just like the idea that such a good visual good such such good visual visually invoking language i imagine them sneering almost like animal people and he's just repelled <laughs> by them because of what they've done to his dad as far as he's concerned Right. And I mean, and I think there, you know, he knows as much as he might, you know, he's still the young one in the room and he's still learning. 
But he, I think, is well aware at this point that everybody in this room is angling for power in their yes. own ways, with their with their own motivations. Like no, everybody here, even if they're not bad, they are inauthentic. Like they they are all they ha- they're hiding things, they're covering things, they're they're inventing stories to probe one another. Like it's it's all probing and jesting. Like there's no honesty whatsoever. Like he, I feel like he can sniff it out. Absolutely. Um, there's a little bit more talk about the the water customs and things of this nature, but we really start kicking things into into what I call the the meat of this with this Lingar Butte, right? Uh, where where he's the water shipper. He he inquires further about the customs, and Leto Leto imagines it as this oily tone in the man's voice. <laughs> And uh, Jessica's like, well, it's almost time for dinner. <laughs> but Leto's like, oh, no. It, she's trying to play politics and, and play nice and distract. And Leto's like, but our guest has questions. He, he wants to hear what the water shipper has to say, the round-faced man with large eyes and thick lips. And uh, <laughs> he recalls Hawat's memorandum, which is, and this water shipper is a man to watch, Lingar Butte. Remember the name. The Harkonnens used him but never fully controlled him. That is a serious a- statement because we know that more so than the Atreides, the Harkonnen can probably control people easier because of what they're willing to do. Right. They're willing to use a fucking hammer on everybody. Absolutely. Right. And I, I find it really interesting where, where Butte goes with his, his observations there. I'd be interested to hear your opinion because mm. it is, it's an odd probe, and I, and I still am trying to understand it, where he says, water customs are so interesting smile on his face i'm curious what you intend about the conservatory attached to this house <laughs> do you intend to continue flaunting it in the people's faces my lord right he's pushing like, he's well, pushing he's right right it's interesting the angle that he's pushing from being what he is that he's almost saying how dare you flaunt this water or like are you know is, is this contradictory to your new changing of customs are you still going to keep that right uh my what are you asking me my read on that yeah, yeah, I'm curious. I think he's testing the Duke's medal. I think, I, I think he's, ta- he's testing the Duke's medal while at the same time subtly displaying the sense of power he truly believes and just may well have. Because <laughs> right. even the Duke says, well, it took bravery to challenge me in my own castle. That's, that's serious. <laughs> Especially since Butte already inked a signature of allegiance to continue doing what he's doing with us. It took a knowledge of personal power. Water, right? power. Water is power. And that's something that I think Butte knows very... Again, we just talked about the importance of... The idea of flaunting water is, is unreal in such a way. And I think he says it this way because he's just being... He's engaging in social sparring. He's testing right. him. He's testing him. He's not hoping he thinks anything different. He's testing him. Right, right, just to see how he reacts. And, and to let him know, I, Lingar Butte, if, am formidable. I, I believe he's trying to also fluff his feathers up a little bit at the Duke's table. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Right. I like that. He, and, you know, because he considers, wow, would he mine his own facility? Like, the, the Duke starts yes. taking it to crazy places. He starts thinking, would this guy like destroy his own water? Like, would, would he do such a thing? Like, mm, yeah. would, would he hold it over me? Is this... And, and that's what, uh, that's, again, Jessica steps in. She's like, oh, we, we're going to keep it, but we're going to hold it in trust for the people of Arrakis. That's what we're planning to do. <laughs> exactly. Mm. 
And the Duke then goes on, your interest in water and weather control is obvious. I'd advise you to diversify your holdings. One day water will not be a precious commodity on Arrakis. Right, right. And, I, and, and that gets back to some of the weather control they were discussing, but, but no man will hold a club over my head. Leto does not want that. He does not want it to be, he doesn't want to, he never wants to feel like Butte has all the power because of his ability to control water. Exactly. Yep. The biggest threat. And this is when Kynes is paying attention, right? Yeah, and and then we get a little bit of Kynes' thoughts, which are, and they shall share your most precious dream. And he speaks to Jessica, do you bring the shortening of the way? So they start this side conversation. And I also thought that was pretty bold of Kynes to bring it up that bluntly in front of everyone. Because mm. um, it's such a specific Fremen myth, which we also know was actually planted there by the Bene Gesserit. But it's such a, a, a Fremen idea, and he just brings it out as if anybody would know. It's almost like he's asking that question so pointedly yes. to see if Jessica even knows what that means. Right, right. And I like how, I like how this sort of gets interrupted by Butte's interjection. And we come back to it. But this interjection is interesting because we see Butte throwing his weight at Kynes a little bit by, by just in the language he chooses, which is, oh, you, you've, you've rolled in with your Fremen mob. Lucky us. How gracious of you. And Kynes has that ice cold threat. It is said <laughs> in the desert that possession of water in great amount can inflict a man with fatal carelessness. <laughs> He's telling I him. Love it. I will kill you at the dinner table. I mean, <laughs> Kynes is not playing games with this guy. And he's like, well, there are many strange things in the desert. And he kind of, you know, his confidence slips there. He's a little bit uneasy. <laughs> so good. And I mean, it, it plays right into that idea we've already heard Kynes talk about of the, the water fat people. Yes. <laughs> the people who are so full yes. and fat and happy with water that it's such, a, it's no concern of theirs at all. They don't even think of it that it does make them careless. It does make them, you know, not think of the methods of survival the way the Fremen do. Mm. Uh, Jessica notes that the, that, that Kynes' original question seemed a bit unnoticed, this discussion of Kwisach Haderach, Jessica thinks. And did our missionary protectiva plant that legend here too? <laughs> right? He could be. <laughs> he could be the Kwisach Haderach. I, um, he could be. Right. Right. Mm. And I find that part interesting too because I, it makes me wonder, is Jessica thinking maybe he will fit the Fremen mold of the Kwisach Haderach and he can step into that position because of their belief in it? Or is she actually saying maybe he really could be the Kwisatz Haderach, the one that even the the Bene Gesserit think could exist? I, I think because because it fans secret hope for Paul. I think both maybe a little bit, right? Maybe right. a little bit of both. But uh, more more stuff between the Duke and Jessica, where he's trying to uh, you know I, the illusion I suspect of treachery must be maintained. Of course, she senses this remoteness and uh, wonders about it. Of course, uh, we, we know that Jessica is perceptive. Right, right absolutely. <laughs> but uh, more, more, of this, more of these discussions continue, right? Uh, some more guests uh, file past, and it gets into the... Uh, Paul passed his father, escorting a young woman half a head taller than him. We learn her father manufactures still suits. That's what Jessica says. I'm told the only fool who would be caught in the deep desert wearing one of the men's suits, only a fool would be caught wearing one of his, basically. Because we know that they right. are nothing compared to what the Fremen can manufacture. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I we, love this we, guy. 
Yes, dude. Tuek is so interesting. The late addition to the party. Gurney arranged the invitation. He's a smuggler. Right. And I, what I love about this is that, that Jessica is kind of at first outwardly playing up the idea that, well, this would, this could look good for you because of, you know, the way that they are dealing with smugglers now, that they are, that instead of, you know, I, I believe it, if it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Harkonnens were trying to smash out smuggler operations entirely, whereas the Atreides are a little more like they're working with the smugglers because they know it's just going to be a reality <laughs> and that, that, that they are more willing to essentially allow the, the smugglers to pay tithe to them. I believe that um, is correct. And so it's like essentially like, well, here's our smuggler representative. But in Jessica's mind, she also keeps in the back of her mind that this could be our out. At, at the end of the day, the man is a mm-hmm. smuggler who possesses, possesses many fast ships, and they need an escape hatch just in case shit really goes tits up. Foreshadow, yes. foreshadow, foreshadow. <laughs> Everyone will wonder, the same. why is he here? Everyone will ask that question, she said. Tuok will sow doubt and suspicion just by his presence. I mean, that is head games. That's master yes. level. That's master level head games. Because you know just this dude's presence sets everybody off a little uneasy. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all, they're all a little off guard now just because this guy is in the room. It, it reminds me of that great moment in the show, The Wire, when Stringer Bell sits in the back of the court while the witness testifies against one of his guys. Just his presence is a problem because suddenly people get forgetful. They know who Stringer <laughs> Bell is. They know he's got a reputation on the street, right? It's the same idea, This, except this is even more, uh, this, this is probably more of an obfuscation. They don't know exactly why. They just know he's there. They know he's a smuggler. There's nobody there who doesn't know he's a smuggler. So they're like, ooh, he got in. He clearly was invited. What does that mean? Right. It's going to make people and also- think. And he so clearly stands out from the rest of them. Like he's obviously, he probably has some degree of wealth and power, but not like these other people who own, you know, whole industries on this planet. And he's this scarred up, rugged looking dude. Like he's kind of, it's implied that he's kind of scary looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yes. they invited a burly ass biker with a switchblade in his belt to like come hang out. And they're like, everybody's like, what is he doing here? <laughs> I love that idea. Like some senator's ball. And then you got a hell's angel guy sitting in the corner <laughs> with his feet up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With his arm around some girl in like a, a beautiful gown. You're like, what the fuck's up with that? <laughs> it's like every mafia picture where the crooked nose guy's in the corner and you're like oh no mickey mickey ice veins is in the corner (laughs) (laughs) oh shit it's mickey stabs a lot oh no god not nicky (laughs) not nicky the knife (laughs) but uh uh, the duke decides it's time for a toast here (laughs) i am and here i remain (laughs) this okay i am still a little I, I feel like Jessica in this scene. I'm slightly yes. perplexed. I'm like raising an eyebrow like, what are you doing right now? Yes. This is a very, for one, the, when when I first read that, I was like, did you just give your own funeral soliloquy? Like, yes. that, like it I feels think, like yes. a man raising a cup to his own death and also <laughs> a, a cup of defiance at the same time. Like, yes, I find it fascinating, but I'm also like, what are you getting at? I love it. I think I think you're on the money here. And that's, uh, that's, that's one of the things I was noting about this too, where, it, it, you know, because people, everyone is, what? <laughs> Everybody's, <laughs> except maybe Tuick. I don't know. Maybe he's like, yeah, this is fun. But 
He yeah. he orders Gurney to strike up a a, a Balasset tune, and Gurley Gurley Gurney goes minor chord with this, making it sad sounding, and he just starts. Exactly. In olden times, it was the duty of the host to entertain his guests with his own talents. I cannot sing, but I give you the words of Gurney's song. Consider it another toast, a toast to all who have died, bringing us to this station. And Jessica's like, oh, no. she's like, good oh, boy. We're and getting that, dark. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And, uh, she, you know, it's still, she's looking around, the round-faced water shipper and his woman. She looks at the austere guild bank rep and uh, the rugged face of Tuek. And he continues, review, friends. Troops long past review, the Duke intoned. All to fade away of pains and dollars. Their spirits were our silver collars. Review, friends, troops long past review. Each a dot of time without pretense or guile. With them passes the lure of fortune. Review, friends, troops long past review. When our time ends on this rictus smile, we'll pass the lure of fortune. And then there's this long silence. And everyone's like, <laughs> okay. Um, it's just this moment frozen in time. And then he takes a big drink from his water flagon, slams it onto the table where it slops over the over onto the table linen. Everybody takes a sip, and then he raises it again and pours out the rest onto the floor, knowing that everybody else as host needs to follow his example. And I find this this is so interesting watching yes. all of the people's different ways of going about this. <laughs> the, the way that they you know, reluctance to just discard it exposed itself in trembling hands, yes. delayed reactions, nervous laughter, and I love this, violent obedience to the, necess- the necessity. Mm. Like, I love the idea of one person being so opposed to doing this, and they just violently throw their water to the floor, almost in protest, but yes. they're still obeying. Yes. <laughs> violent, violent obedience is hilarious. <laughs> and that moment of Kynes, dude, Kynes fucking rules <laughs> in this rules. chapter. I he fucking rules. love him. He dumps oh, his water so into his pack, and he smiles and he gets, at Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> he gets caught doing it, and he's like, "Milady, like I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm the, I'm a fremen. I'm not wasting this shit. It's not happening." <laughs> Jessica starts to chalk this up as losing the factory crawler, right? Right, right, and and it bothers her. And she wonders about this. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's because she she worries that he acts like a desperate man, right? But then at the same time, as she thinks more on it, why not? He is desperate. <laughs> like we are in desperate times. But you know, I I I again, I find myself I, I find myself identifying most with Jessica in this chapter by trying to you know, even we the reader don't fully understand uh, Leto's discontent here. Right. I mean, I think there, there's there's the obvious surface level stuff, like we've already been saying about the you know losing the cr- the trawler, losing men, you know their operation already being at peril so early on. Um, that all is on the surface. That all is like the obvious stuff of what could be you know pissing him off and, and sure. making him feel uneasy and desperate. But then there is you know I feel like there's there are hints there and are allusions to something deeper going on with. Leto himself, when we get those glimpses into his perspective, when he's thinking these death thoughts, when he's thinking of a future without him, and he's thinking of his son replacing him, it. And again, I think I think our biggest clue to all of this is is his speech, is him raising his flag, and is him, you know, pulling up this exultation of my troops, no, you know, no longer needing review, as if the war is already done and lost. Right. Um, it, it's such a heavy spirit coming out of him such a, a forlorn attitude 
And even I am like, I don't fully understand it. Mm. I'm curious about your take on that. It's it, yes, I I I definitely identify with her trying to wrap her head around all of it. But I think so much of this is coming to a head for him, and it, it there is there there is a self fulfilling prophecy occurring as we get towards the end of these few chapters we're covering, knowing what what's going to befall him, and in understanding that everything around him is a stark reminder of some sort of end, and the carryall is just that such a gut punch. I think it is very true. He's not news travels fast when it's brought up, right? Right. He's very, he's not happy about it. And uh, then it's true because the banker's asking, of course it's true. He snaps at the guy. (laughs) I mean, the guilt banker blasted, blasted Cariel disappeared. It shouldn't be possible for anything that big to disappear. And that's when kind says when the worm came, there was nothing to recover the crawler. It should not be possible. The dupe repeated. No one saw the Cariel leave. A Cariel's complement usually is four men, two pilots and two journeymen attachers. If one or even two of his crew are in the pay of the Duke's forces. <gasps> I see, says the banker. Kind suggesting this treachery occurred. Right. This is huge. I found like this one, this moment really stuck out to me. Uh, because right after, you know, we get that that moment of Kynes just speculating, saying, you know, if one of the crew are in the pay of the Duke's foes, and the, the banker immediately goes, Well, and you, as judge of the change. Do you challenge this? Do you challenge mm. this idea? And Kind says, I shall have to consider my position carefully, and I will certainly not discuss it at the table. Right. And then he thinks, now this is the this is the part that really jumped out at me. He thinks to himself, that pale skeleton of a man, he knows this is the kind of infraction I was instructed ah. to ignore. So to me, we need to we need to dive into this moment. Let's this do is it. something to and, and did to I pull answer apart. your Duke thing sufficiently? There, I think you kind of nailed it. I don't know if there's much more to say about the perception of him from Jessica's POV. Right? No, I mean, I think I think yeah, we we've got it. And I mean, I think I almost think we are supposed to feel slightly confused. Absolutely, <laughs> I, Absolutely. I think that's a part of it. Yep. Um, but no, in this moment, so I feel like there's there's a lot that is revealed in that one line. For mm-hmm. one, it says uh, to me, anyways, anyways. This man, the guild banker, uh, as a representative of the guild, he's kind of in on it. Like, he knows something about Kynes' position, not as a, a, you know, not as a Fremen and his position among them, but but his position among the Imperium. Right. Um, And the fact that he was, Kynes was instructed to ignore that kind of infraction, almost as if the Imperium instructed him to, if there is possible Harkonnen treachery, you don't say anything about it. You let it play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the way I took it anyways. And then, you know, to, to me, the bigger revelation here is that the guild is somewhat knowledgeable of this or, or in on it in some way. Yes, I agree with your assessment. I think that's, I think you have it pinned exactly. I would tweak the guild portion to just say this. The guild does not have ambition for any of these power structures because their power remains. They just know probably because it doesn't even matter if they know or don't know. Because they're not part of any of it. They, they, it, almost like the Bene Gesserit, maybe they know the treachery, but they, they don't count themselves among it, nor do they take sides. Mm, right. So, right. so I mean, they, they almost, it almost even implies that they are almost outside of Imperium control entirely. In a sense, <laughs> in a sense, they kind of are, right? Yeah, in in a wild. sense, they are. It's, it's to suggest, it, it would almost be like saying, again, if we go back to the Amazon comparison we had before, if, if it became the thing where, okay, yeah, but but at the end of the day, if the guild is 
you know, at the end of the day, the guild still needs, well, I guess they don't really in this case. I'm, I'm kind of second guessing what I was about to say. Because at the end of the day, the guild is still super powerful. And they do, they do operate tangentially to the Imperium. They, they kind of exist right. to, with each other because they almost have to. The, kill, the <laughs> right. guild can't kind of stop existing, but they also, they also will not be controlled by the Imperium. And, and I don't think they necessarily take sides as far as we know at this point. I think we just see them as passive observers who know what's going on because they're super powerful. They're just there to trade. Right. They handle space travel. They handle shipping. And whether they're shipping Harkonnen goods or Atreides goods, it doesn't matter because they're so important to the daily life of everyone in the Imperium that no one's going to fuck with them. <laughs> right, right. Like the Harkonnen, they have, aren't, aren't going to scheme the guild. They're not going to do that. Right, right, because they fucking can't. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, I, I like this moment where Jessica's considering espionage. She's considering this stuff she's watching this play out right the banker smiles he he, there's a little communication between him and kind sort of or at least understanding a silent understanding and she considers this a thing to note about any espionage and or counter espionage school is a similar basic reaction pattern of all its graduates any enclosed discipline sets its stamp its pattern upon its students that pattern is susceptible to analysis and prediction now, motivational patterns are going to be similar among all espionage agents, uh, all espionage, espionage agents. This is to say, there will be certain types of motivation that are similar despite differing, differing schools or opposed aims. You will study first how to separate this element for your analysis in the beginning, through interrogation patterns that betray the inner orientation of the interrogators. Secondly, by close observation of language, thought, orientation of those under analysis. And this goes on and on. And that's when she gets into the, you know, and I was sitting at the table with her son and her duke and their guests here in the Guild Bank. Jessica felt a chill realization. The man was a Harkonnen agent. He had the giddy prime speech pattern, subtly masked, but exposed to her trained awareness as though he had announced himself. Does this mean the guild itself has taken sides against House Atreides, she wonders, right? Yeah, this is huge. So she's wondering if that's the case. And if that's the case, we just had whatever we were thinking nullified. Because if he is if he is from Gidi Prime, if he does have the patterns of speech recognizable, is it possible he's compromised or just sympathetic? Mm, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Because I on my first read, I, I was pretty much like, oh, so it's been, you know, at least to Jessica fully exposed that he is at least in some way reporting back to the Harkonnens. But I mean, you're right. He might have just been from Gietti Prime. <laughs> we but, don't know. But she does suggest that his ominous overtones are, are going to be, there's going to be a pattern and he'll change the subject. And he does. He literally starts to talk about birds. Right. Right. It's a very sharp change of subject. Correct. And they pay attention and they talk about all of our birds, of course, are carrion eaters and, uh, and of course, they, they many exist without water. They, they, they're blood drinkers. And that's when uh, they decide to, take, to, 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 to make some jokes. They get a little funny here. <laughs> well, this, but also at this moment, too, continues to play into Jessica's uh, analysis. Absolutely. Of Be- because the still suit manufacturer's daughter goes, Oh, Susu, you say the most disgusting things. And then the banker smiles. They call me Susu because I'm financial advisor to the Water Peddlers Union. Um, and this, to Jessica, as soon as she hears that, she, she realizes, it came to Jessica that the banker had said, 
I too control the ultimate source of power on Arrakis. Yes. Water. Like, and she also realizes that the, the still suit manufacturer's daughter pretty much said that on cue mm-hmm. in order to give him the opportunity to point out that, yes, I am called Susu <laughs> because of my high position to the water peddlers union, that I also have real influence when it comes to the you know source of water on this planet. And it's so, and it's so measured in practice. It's a game of chess, this conversation. It, everything is so <laughs> deliberate. And Paul's paying attention here. He's learning. He's watching. He knows that his mom is all over this. He knows that she's in her Benny Gesserit ways all over it. And he decides to play the foil, to draw an exchange out. Again, this is this is conversational jujitsu, right? <laughs> exactly. And, Do you uh, mean, sir, that these birds are cannibals? <laughs> right. That's right. an odd question, young master. I merely said the birds drink blood. It doesn't have to be the blood of their own kind, does it? Mm. Most educated people know that the worst potential competition for any young organism can come from its own kind. Uh, I like this. It's, it's, this, is, this gets very tense here when they drag kinds into it, right? <laughs> it's true. It's a rule of ecology, says Kynes, that the young master appears to understand quite well. The struggle between life elements is the struggle for the free energy of a system. Blood's an efficient energy source. Oh, the firm and scum drink blood of the dead. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. All of a man's water. <laughs> <laughs> All of it. I like how he dead leans man in. Need it. Exactly. I like how he just leans into what this guy assumes is going to be an insult to, to sort of appear menacing yet again. Fatal carelessness, right. he said to Butte earlier. Now he's saying, oh, no, not the blood, sir. All of the water. <laughs> we, we juice them up. We put them we, in the juice. We stand, we stand around them with straws and we withdraw <laughs> all of his water and fluids, every nasty bit of it. Right. <laughs> a dead man surely no longer requires water. And that's when uh, the banker gets a little nervous and Jessica sees it. Again, kinds unsettling people. <laughs> yeah the banker you can tell is losing his cool at this point he says you've associated so long with Fremen that you've lost all sensibilities and then Kynes looked at him calmly studied mm. the pale trembling face are you challenging me sir <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love this are moment. we crossed <laughs> <laughs> do we need to cross swords are we crossed if I didn't think you liked me Ike I just don't think I could bear it He's like Doc Holliday <laughs> at the table, right? That's what he reminds me of, this real cool customer. But no, it, it, it's, of course, the man backs off of all of this. And this is a moment of obvious change in the way Kynes feels about the Atreides by suggesting they're brave people who understand defense of honor. We all may attest to their courage by the fact that they are here now on Arrakis. And this is huge because Leto for a while wasn't sure what to make of Kynes. And Kynes made an, uh, Leto made an impression on Kynes in the way he handled the Carol incident. And now it appears that a lot of his thoughts on the Atreides people is starting to solidify into the positive. Right. That he considers them at least honorable. Honorable people. Yep. Absolutely. It's good stuff. Very good. But they continue (laughs) on and uh, there's... uh, there's an apology, of course. I meant no offense as the banker and, you know, freely given, freely accepted. Kynes says no hard feelings, essentially. <laughs> so good. So badass. I love Kynes in this. But that realization where Jessica thinks Kynes would have killed him without hesitating. I mean, that's, <laughs> exactly. a, that's, that's quite the revelation to have at the dinner table. And that's when she realized, oh, that's an offhand attitude towards killing in Kynes' manner. He was a casual killer. And she guessed that this is a Fremen quality. 
Gotta gotta get those Fremen allies, baby. You need them. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. But just so much of so so much of this so much of this dinner is 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 punctuated in in the amazing exchanges and alertness and awareness that these people have for one another. Uh, She you know she when she's talking about this uh, this dish, oh what a dish, and and he wants the recipe. She she considers this. (laughs) <laughs> and she has one of the greatest lines in the chapter. Growth is limited by the necessity, which is present in the least amount. Growth uh, is limited point. by that necessity, which is present in the least amount. <laughs> so good for LSG media. That's social uh, for LSG media. That's social media. <laughs> Growth <laughs> is limited by the necessity, which is present in the least amount. Social media. <laughs> I'm sure everyone can use this line to reevaluate their own lives. <laughs> what am I doing the least of that's also so necessary? Absolutely. And naturally, the least favorable condition controls the growth rate. I love that line. I think it's very good. And it shows a keen awareness of breaking down the complexities and the nuance of politics and leadership into actionable considerations, right? That's I, a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. It's the water is the example here, right? It's the least favorable and growth itself can produce unfavorable conditions. So as you grow, unfavorable conditions become a problem. Boy, water's the vicious cycle. You need it to grow. And as you grow, you'll need more because you'll consume it. Right. And also, I mean, I think it also implies that the very act of growth itself will create new unfavorable conditions that couldn't be foreseen too. Mm. Almost like the idea that as something becomes more complex, there will also be more issues. There will be more problems with that complexity. And, and the watermark, and, and Butte's not too thrilled to hear about this possibility of some sort of orderly cycle of water, sustainable water. This concerns him. He says, well, this is ludicrous. There's no evidence to support it. Again, he's very brash. He's very bold. And uh, Kynes is like, this is a very limited view, your laboratory ideas it's very limited right he does point out yeah that idea that you will all of you all of your hypotheses about the 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 situation of iraq as and how whether it's changeable or not come from tests in the lab and not the natural ecosystem that actually exists on iraq as taking it as a whole mm-hmm. yep i like that moment where kinds two says you know water seems to overshadow all their problems here we've we've talked at length for f- an hour now about the importance of water just about in this idea of planet as much oxygen without its usual contaminants and they start getting into there isn't enough water butte says there's just not enough and he's going to sit on that and why wouldn't he he has a vested interest in water his entire fortune is built on water this butte character <laughs> and then this is again where we where we start to get more a little bit more from kinds here mm. but it's still so much a mystery um because i it implies that kinds is hiding something about the very nature of Arrakis itself. Mm-hmm. Something that I think people outside of the Fremen just don't realize because Jessica Jessica watched the play of emotion on his face. He masks himself well, yep. she thought, but she had him registered now and read that he regretted his words. Right. Uh, and then she even says he's faking uncertainty after he says there may be enough water. And Paul um, downright assu- reads there is enough. Paul believes this. And I'm glad you brought up Jessica reading Kynes. We haven't talked about that much because Kynes is so formidable. He's so formidable. And Jessica has him mapped out. I mean, in one dinner. 
she's got this guy mapped yeah. out. So Kynes is not going to ever fool Jessica ever again. And by extension, unlikely she, that he'll fool Paul. As formidable as Kynes is, as awesome as he is to talk about, you know, having all this water will give you fatal carelessness. And, and are you challenging me? And and, uh, and and the good things he said about the Atreides, we still see that in with the power of Benny Gesserit training, these women are just so good at seeing everything. They register everything. They catalog you. They're, they're like... Com- they're, they're biological computers. Well, that's more mentats, but, but, but they are so good at registering everything in, in, in having your patterns. They see patterns in you. They see patterns in everything. That's what they do. Right. Right. Exactly. But yes, Noting everyone's patterns. I like that where I like that it gives us the reader, uh, this, this shadow of doubt. We start thinking, well, wait a minute here. Wait a second. What, what's he hiding? What, I mean, at this point in the book, the idea that Water, a water cycle may exist is serious news for Arrakis. And in the excitement which grips Paul, this idea, there is. He he thinks there is enough, but Kynes doesn't wish it to be known. That makes sense. That makes sense. Maybe it's not ready to be known. Maybe maybe a guy like Kynes sees these off-worlders as people who, if they if they know what I know now, then then it won't be so. They'll fuck it up. That might be something right. he's considering, right? Maybe they're not ready to know. That they'll be too eager to exploit it, that they'll, you know, mm. <laughs> do it irresponsibly, wreck it. I, I, but it also Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think I think it's interesting because I, I even took it as this is something even probably the Imperium doesn't know. And sure. I, that's what I find so so interesting about Kynes that he's in this dual position of being an agent, literally an agent of the Emperor and the Imperium. But also this almost free-willed Fremen himself. He's accepted among you know all the CHs of the Fremen. Yet I, I feel like we, as we learn more about him, we are seeing his loyalty be revealed more and more to be closer to the Fremen. Absolutely. Yeah, I imagine him not be not airing the secrets of Arrakis to the Emperor. <laughs> he seems to have a way about him that would suggest that he's not the stooge of the Imperium who behaves the way he behaves and speaks the way he does. You'd imagine an agent of the Imperium would not say something along the lines of, are you threatening me? You, you, you would think <laughs> right, that that would right. be outside of Imperium decorum in the midst of, uh, of a power change. <laughs> you would imagine that you might stow that if you're, if you're representing the Padishah Emperor. <laughs> True. It's a good point. So this gets busted up a little, doesn't it? There's, you know, one of Howitt's men come in. They whisper to the Duke. He tells everyone to be calm. Paul's going to host for a moment. No need for alarm. Everyone stay put. We're going to take care of this shortly. He says a few things, but it's code, and Paul picks up on it. Guard, safe, secure, shortly, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when, um, that's when he gives a short nod, and Paul takes over. I like right. this a lot. <laughs> it's one of the one of the times where we see Paul literally have to replace his father, step mm. into the role. Absolutely, and we see a, a bit of a glare. We have we have a, a a bit of tension starts to arise between Butte and the banker, the the waterman and the guild banker with accent with an accent from Giddy Prime, right? <laughs> right. This is so good. Mm. Come, Master Butte, lead us in a toast. Perhaps you have a dollop of wisdom for the boy who must be treated like a man. <laughs> So the banker's insulting Butte. He's insulting Paul. He's really, he's really inflating to be the true dick of the party. Yes, it's it's it is fatal carelessness. It's it's precisely what what. It's interesting that 
once Kynes laid off of him a little bit, that he just could not help but revert to that which he is, right? <laughs> exactly. Under the under the glaring aura produced by Kynes, he withered. But as Kynes turned his attention off of him, he just reverted to being that who he was. And this discussion is interesting because I love the idea of, I, I believe, the manufacturer's daughter imagining death by drowning. What an interesting— it's so foreign. It's so foreign. That's something we take for granted, Right. What an interesting yeah. way to die, she considers. The idea of drowning in water. First of all, that you'd have an excess of water enough to drown in. What a crazy right. thought that is. I like that. That's such good world building there. That's something somebody would say. That's brainstorm thinking by, the, uh, by Frank Herbert here, right? This idea of, yeah, think about this. Like, what, is, what does no water mean? It's, it's hard to just imagine, but that's a really good consistency in what you would imagine would be something that somebody would consider on a world such as Arrakis. Right, that that, that 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 idea would be so alien to them that it would strike them. Mm. And this gets into this idea of a drowning man. He said, the drowning man who climbs on your shoulders to save himself is understandable, except when you see it happening in the drawing room. <laughs> and I should add, except when you see it at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Paul tells this story, that Paul yes. asserts this idea of, basically, I, I the way I read that is that he's, just basically asserting that you are a naked climber and we can all see it. Absolutely. We can all see you trying to step on everybody's heads Mm -hmm. and trying to keep your place and that we are all pointing out to him that you're not hiding it. Yes. (laughs) And, 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 and to associate drowning with their climb, I find interesting. Yeah. Right. It's almost like saying, part of me is thinking he's saying the Atreides in this little uh, analogy, this analogous tale is the water. You can, you can, you're, you're all climbing on each other to get above the surface of that, which we are. And it's so obvious to us. <laughs> That's a really good point. I did not think of it that right? way. You're right though. And you're doing it at the goddamn dinner table, you moron. <laughs> and Let me, this 15 year old fucking put you in your place. <laughs> Jessica thinks it's rash and Tuik just starts laughing. I love it. Yeah, I love I love <laughs> the idea of this room of a bunch of stuffed ass prissy royals and rich bankers yes, and shit yes. all being like in stunned silence and then the big burly biker just being like, ha, 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 that's fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> just laughing his ass off. I love it. In kinds with a great line, one baits in Atreides at his own risk. Now he's speaking in like, now, now, now he's speaking in, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, uh, you know, he, he's using... He's using like poetic language to describe the Atreides now, and he's since he's turned favorable on them, right? And I even like I love how it's almost like he's playing into the water metaphor of like, one baits an Atreides at his own risk. Indeed. Like he's almost he's alley ooping Paul. <laughs> yes, a pro- proverb was the word I was gra- grasping for. There we are. But uh, <laughs> the tension gets very thick here, and I love how. The code word Garmin means prepare for violence. Yes. And also, dude, that line, that line from Jessica is so fucking sharp and good. My son displays a general garment and you claim it's cut to your fit. Like basically right. saying, why did you step up to embrace that insult? Why are, if you're mad about it, you're, you are therefore admitting it's that you fit that insult. Indeed. Yep. It's so good. It, but tension goes <laughs> around the room here. Kinds is wondering what's going on he's he gives a kinds i mean the whole room is on alert especially since the duke walked out he mentioned there's a, a small security concern we're handling it don't worry about it and then 
that just adds a whole layer of tension to the rest of this dialogue at the table. Prepare for violence is the code. She's reaching for the Chris knife, kind of signaling Tuick, the, the smuggler Tuick, our biker friend. He's lurching to his feet. I love it. But only yep. to shout, let's give a toast to young Paul Atreides, still a lad by his looks, but a man by his actions. Indeed. Like, I love that. It's a, it's a, it's a jarring moment to kind of dispel the tension in the mm-hmm. room. That, that I love that Kynes' action in this moment is to essentially calm the room. Right. Although he does put, a, put the fear of God back into, <laughs> back into uh, the agent's face, the banker. Oh, the banker, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Jessica's considering this kind's fellow. He he's a leader. People follow this guy, and and I like that. He's a judge of change. It can't be right. That's temporary, and certainly not because he's a civil servant. So now, like yourself, Matt, she's trying to wrap her head around where is this man's loyalties to? What what about this kind's fellow? <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's good shit. He's so fucking mysterious. Uh, my my probably my favorite moment in the chapter. Uh, this is something I posted on Instagram. In our society, people shouldn't be quick to take offense. It's frequently suicidal, don't you think so, Miss? And the manufacturer's daughter says, "Oh yes, I do. There's too much violence. It makes me sick. And lots of times, no offense is meant, but people die anyway. It makes no sense, or it doesn't make sense. Indeed, it doesn't." Says Halleck. I love that. I love that line. It's different in this context, but in any context, right? <laughs> it's awesome no need to die over a fence mm. but uh this this conversation this this whole chapter continues and uh we get into some discussion about the duke spoke of our being secure here i do hope that doesn't mean more fighting she was directed to leave the conversation this way jessica thought right yes so again <laughs> this girl continues to under some sort of direction as jessica points out brings elements of this conversation in such a way to alter the course of the conversation into something that they're motivated to alter it into. Does that make sense? Right. Say that again, though. Uh, <laughs> I might know if I can repeat that. So <laughs> this, so it says, the Duke spoke of our being secure here, right? The dark-haired companion says this. I do hope that doesn't mean more fighting, and that's when Jessica thinks she was directed to lead the conversation this way. In other words, this, this dark-haired mysterious companion of the still suit manufacturer is directing the conversation but was led to direct the conversation this way, meaning she is directing this conversation in a way that isn't by her own device, but she's doing it anyway. Right. 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 As if instructed. Like she's a patsy as she's, she's being instructed to direct the conversation to a place that's obviously favorable to whoever wants it directed that way. Right. Right. Mm. Which I guess, I mean, I, I take it as the subject being led to is, I, I essentially the the Atreides stance on on Harkonnen agents. I mean, that's that's where Jessica yes. then takes it, and she um, hammers it, dude. Yeah, dude. That moment where she's she like, hammers he will, it. He will leave no Harkonnen agent alive on Arrakis. Of course, she glanced at the game, the <laughs> Guild Bank agent, <laughs> and the conventions naturally support him in this. <laughs> right? Yeah, this is totally fine. He got chopped up, and that's when the that that's that's a great moment. That's. That's her pushing the envelope, maybe trying to suss out, is this guy truly bad news? Right. right? Like, let's see his reaction to that. Yeah. They get talking to birds again, but that's when they talk about this motherload of spice found in the southern reaches. reaches. I suspect it's an imaginative invention. Kynes is talking all about this. Some, some daring space hunters roll out there to the central belt. It's dangerous, uh, profitable if you do it, but 
if we had a weather satellite. But uh, they're just just more more kind of wild rumors, more more sort of idle talk. But again, uh, Kynes is is sort of nabbed by Jessica Ginn with deception in his words. Right. That yeah, he. It, it's so interesting Soap how much sick, he wants sip wells, right? Yeah, soaks and sip wells, a place where, you know, uh, water either rises to the surface and can be found by digging or a, a, a type of soak where a person can draw water through a straw straight from the sand. And, you know, he's, he's saying that these are just wild rumors. It is, it is simply something that people say. But it seems to me, at least the way I take it, that he is very careful to guard both the secrets of, of the deep desert of Arrakis and of what the Fremen know about it. Especially um, like, as it relates to water. Exactly, yeah. Uh, anything about water, he is really, he keeps so close to his vest. Mm-hmm. And they know he's lying. And Paul knows he's lying. <laughs> I yes, like that. They're both onto it. Well, Leto returns with some delightful news. A Harkonnen agent and the crew overpowered the others and flew the machine to a smuggler's base. So their missing carryall has been found. Yes, indeed. Thanks to the smuggler's help. And of course, we get a little nod exchange between Jessica and Tuek. So Love it. <laughs> good move to it. <laughs> good move to keep him around. Right. Yep. The people have such high hopes that traders will bring peace and prosperity, especially prosperity, says Butte. Right? <laughs> yeah. But a uh fucking liar. So many, so many things to pick up on. Jessica registering the uh the still suit man as a fearful climber who can be bought. Right? She now has her 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 computer brain spits out the 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 final report we can buy this one right we know that for sure the harkonnens tried to get in a shipment of lags guns we captured them that might mean they succeeded with other shipments we're learning right, some right. more some more small talk and that's you know and the chapter closes here with the 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 real threat that looms in jessica's mind now and probably probably among the rest of atreides which is also likely part of the harkonnen deception mm-hmm. but they're focused now on on the lays guns which Literally a single shot from a laser gun into a house shield could detonate like an atomic bomb. Right. <laughs> like that, you know, could truly be uh, uh, the biggest disaster possible. And so it's that too, then becomes their worry. And it's too big of a variable to think the Harkonnens would be so silly. Why would they jeopardize their own lives? Right. That's, that's starting to become a consideration. Right. Right. Yep. That's a good point. Paul, I've never doubted we'd find the carryall. Once my father moves to solve a problem, he solves it. This is a fact the Harkonnens are beginning to discover. And Jessica wonders why he boasts. <laughs> he shouldn't boast. No person who will be sleeping far below ground level this night as a precaution against laser guns has the right to boast. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> Your shit is in peril. What a great chapter of, of, God, of so people good. sitting at a table and it being loaded with intrigue and in varying degrees of mood shifts and understanding and insights in deception, again, uh, the weapon of the day, deception. Right. Uh, I mean, in this very chapter, we see Kynes go from being a mysterious figure who they're not sure how much they can trust to a mysterious figure who is allying themselves with them subtly. But yeah. he is. He's taking Paul's side. He's defending the Atreides' honor. He is, he is really showing how much he takes their side over pretty much any of these leaders of industry on Arrakis. Like, you can tell he has pretty much nothing but disdain for them. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I love about it too. And I'm glad you said that because it really, it really separates the Atreides from the flotsam, doesn't it? As far as Kynes exactly. is concerned. And it's, and it's interesting to wonder what Kynes may have been like before going to Dune 
would he what would, would was this person always in him and it just came out in his time among the fremen i don't know but it is an interesting consideration and i do like that he's starting he's already writing octrade he's already writing proverbs for them bait one at your own risk right <laughs> <laughs> true awesome <laughs> all right on to chapter 17 i uh, i screwed you cuz i gave you the long one to read mine short <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 17, and uh, just for a point of order for people, do you want to tell them what page you were on in your book? Yes, in my uh, paperback Penguin edition, I am on page 237. And I'm on 185. And you know what I'm thinking? I don't know if it's utterly necessary to keep telling people this, because I think I'm just going to put it right in the show notes, although I guess we can put it in both. When when these are properly released, they, your, your show notes in your pod, pod app will give you all the information you need to follow along. Yes, indeed. There is no escape. We pay for the violence of our ancestors. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Whew. Ominous. <laughs> A oh, bit ominous, I'd say. Alrighty. Okay. <laughs> um, but what an interesting chapter. There's this, this, yes. this kind of lead up to where this chapter really wants to focus on the relationship between Hawat and Jessica and it really establishes the Hawat character. It's right. it's right. he is this guy's like the Bill Belichick of <laughs> of the Atreides house, isn't he? <laughs> he is boy, like it he really is just reveals by the book. And in yeah. loyal as loyal can be to the Duke. Right. Right. Pissed to even consider that anybody would question it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And and in and, and when we get to that stuff, just the argumentation between the two and really feeling the sense of frustration of Jessica trying to convince him to understand this perspective a little bit different while he's also kind of doing it the same way to her. Right? Right. Right. But <clears throat> Go ahead. Essentially, I, I was just going to say that, that they each kind of hold an axe over the other's head. Yeah, <laughs> in interesting. One sense. In, indeed, yeah. She's got the ultimate axe, the sort of Damocles, as it were, which is her <laughs> ability to just command if she feels just tell your ass to sit down. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. The command whipped out, right? As Mohaim did to Paul, the command whipped out at Paul. Oh, so good. But this starts with a disturbance. Jessica hears a disturbance, gets out of bed. It's two o'clock in the morning. She thinks, could this be Harkonnen? And she hears shouting. What's going on? Is somebody hurt? What is this? What's happening? This is great. This is a great red herring here. (laughs) True, true. And and I love how it it really gets across the atmosphere, you know, in the Atreides house here. Sure. Any commotion like this, they're immediately like, is this it? Is this the Harkonnen attack? Like they are Mm -hmm. so primed and, and, and constantly on edge of that threat that they, they, they hear a loud commotion. They hear some pots and pans banging around to other. Like, is that it? Is the Harkonnens? Is it yes. fucking happening? Yes. We know it's coming. And essentially, I, I don't know if it would be utterly necessary to talk through each one of these lines, but Duncan Idaho is completely blitzkrieged. <laughs> yes, he is. Fucking and, head hung low, being <laughs> escorted in. And, he keeps saying something along the lines of my sword was first blooded on Grumman. He's <laughs> very drunk. And oh, yeah. we understand they're always calling him for the surveillance of ladies. But why is he <laughs> drunk? And why would Idaho get so drunk? Why is he drugged? 
Many times over, Jessica considers, why is he so blitzed? Right. <laughs> like, surely he goes out and drinks occasionally. He's a soldier. It's fine. He, he carouses with other soldiers. But why is he so just shit-housed, can't even stand up, speaking nonsense? And Mapes is here. We haven't, we haven't heard from the shout-out Mapes much. She's here trying to figure out how to help him sober up with her concoctions, if I'm not mistaken, correct? <laughs> right. Yeah, she's going to bring some spice coffee for his ass. We know that Dr. Yue is being called for. We understand that Yue is, in fact, our traitor. We know this from the second chapter of the book. Oh, yes, indeed. And it's it's just he's a goddamn mess. <laughs> and Absolutely. Yue, I mean, to the point where Yue busts out his 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 medical kit and we know that spiced beer is the thing that perhaps the household of Atreides is just not used to. My sword was first, blooded on Grumman. I've killed for the Duke. I've killed Harkonnen. <laughs> and, and, and this seems to be... Uh, once we realize Duncan Idaho is causing this chaos, it must feel like on some level a little bit of a relief to Jessica, but we also know that Jessica has amazing perception. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it comes down, you know, but the, it the biggest moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the biggest moment in this part of the chapter is when, you know, she says, this is no way to act in your Duke's home. And she thrusts this cup of coffee toward his hand and says, now drink this. That's mm-hmm. an order. And then Idaho jerked himself upright, scowling down at her. He spoke slowly with careful and precise enunciation. I do not take orders from a damn Harkonnen spy. <laughs> Oh, you, you fuck up. Boy. You're not supposed to say that. Whoopsie. And this Oopsie is Daisy. excellent. Her face had gone pale, but she was nodding. It all became clear to her. The broken stems of meaning she had seen in the words and actions around her these past few days could now be translated. She found herself in the grip of anger almost too great to contain. It took the most profound of her Benny Jesuit training to quiet her pulse and smooth her breathing. Even then, she could feel the blaze flickering. They were always calling on Idaho for surveillance of the ladies. Oh, I'm a lady! <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, and she and even, goes, yeah. oh, what? She's <laughs> furious. Oh, damn, damn. <laughs> you can just tell she's ready to fucking cut somebody down. She so is pissed. not thrilled. So, of course, <laughs> we, we, we lock up Idaho, let him sleep it off, and this is where we really get to the meat and potatoes of this chapter, which is this fencing between Hawat and Jessica. Now, to recap, Hawat is the one who first brought his concerns to Jessica to the Duke, or Jessica to the Duke. Right, right, that he was concerned that she could be the Harkonnen plant. Correct. And that is all part of the Harkonnen treachery because UA cannot be done because of his Souk school training, which we know is just not true. And the only people that know it are the Harkonnen right now. It's interesting that the one taken for granted actuality that they all believe they live in is that Souk school training makes you impervious to any fuckery. But we learned that's simply not the case. And sadly, the Atreides do not know that and the Harkonnen do, and suspicion has fallen on to Jessica. Hawat's right, not right. thrilled with the Bene Gesserit in general. 
(laughs) we're going to learn a lot about why here and it makes sense why he there's disdain there because of it gets back to power there's a power dynamic he's just uncomfortable with right right and no and, and to get back to what one thing you were saying like the the sheer fact that they you know everybody you know we have already seen that the Atreides are smart perceptive people. Jessica is extremely smart and perceptive. She's Indeed, you know, been a Jesuit. Thufir Howard is a mintat, extremely smart and perceptive, and they are all even highly self aware. But the one assumption that they all have that they don't even question is that Souk school imperial training, that, yes. that, 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 that conditioning. They think it's just, no, we can't even suspect Yui. That's just impossible. Like that, it's such a glaring mistake. You know, and I, I actually really enjoy that as the reader because we see how smart these people are. We know they're not dumb, but this is one oversight. You know, the dramatic irony of watching them all miss that, miss that one thing. It's, it's painful, but it, it's good. Uh, because it also, you know, we see how much that plays into the Harkonnen intrigue of how they will bounce off of one one another instead. Yes. And Jessica knows she's going to have a meeting with Hawat to the point where she makes it a, she, she makes a concerted effort to take note of everything in the room in case this gets weird. Where's the doors? Where's the chairs? Where's cover? Where's my Chris knife? Everything is being precisely considered for emergency, the chase, the chairs, the tables, the zither, <laughs> everything. I love that. Jessica is so trained, so trained, and it's very apparent in the way that she deals with potential threats. Absolutely. And so ready. in comes Hawat. Now remember, to add to this scene, we have to remember that Jessica is distinctly aware that there is a traitor in the Atreides house. They all know it. Mm-hmm. Hawat suspects her, she supposes, because Duncan didn't come to this conclusion by herself. We got to make that clear. She's less mad at Duncan because she right. knows Duncan would not come to this conclusion by himself. Maybe that says something about his perception. We understand he's a sword man. We understand he has a way with people. He's a leader, but maybe not necessarily has this eye for perception, this eye for detail, nor would he ever suspect Jessica ever. So right, she wouldn't come to that on his own. It, right. And that's why she screams, bring Hawa to me immediately. <laughs> He's the master of secrets and whispers. He's indeed, their guy. Indeed. And the, so now she's thinking, could Hawa be the guy? Right. Because in her, from her point of view, which makes total sense, the fact that, that he would possibly create that seed of doubt, that, that he would put that on her, What a perfect way to deflect attention away from himself. And it goes right back to what we said about Hawat and what we're now seeing about Jessica. Neither one of them suspect Yue. And they both suspect each other, which is precisely the type of confusion that the Harkonnen are trying to sow in the Atreides ranks. Exactly. Exactly. And that actually comes up here. But it becomes, it starts, right? We, I love the way she watches him move in crackling sense of drug-induced energy in his movements, his fatigue, uh, his roomy eyes glittered. And he, he's fucking bleeding, too. Like, there he's, is a cut on his arm. There's a cut on his arm. So, I mean, you know, as much as they downplayed the security incident earlier, that shit got a little hairy, it sounds got like. Got a little hairy with the smuggler. We got a little hairy with the carry-all. Yep. Yeah. Fucking gnarly. Sit facing me. Hawa bowed, obeyed. That drunken fool of Idaho, she keeps thinking. 
It's long past time to clear the air between us, Jessica said. What trouble is my lady? I, I love the way he plays this. Don't be coy. If UA didn't tell you why someone, then one of your spies in my household did. Shall we be at least that honest with each other? As you wish. Are you now a Harkonnen agent? He half surged out of his chair. You dare insult me so. It's funny that he Sit finds down. that so incredulous. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> How dare you ever even think that? <laughs> I'm loyal to my Duke, so I'm prepared to forgive your affront to me. I love that. I love that in this weird, outside of him trying to plow her, in this weird Lancelot way, his loyalty for the Duke is so high that it really affects his interactions with her. Right, right. And I mean, again, that, and that's what actually allows her to realize he's not the traitor either. But that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe how it sowed the suspicion of her, but he's not doing it because he's an Harkonnen agent. You know, mm-hmm. she, she says it isn't how it. Right, right. What brought your suspicion onto me, she wonders. My lady puts her servant in an impossible position. My first loyalty is to the Duke. <laughs> that's outstanding. I'm prepared to forgive much because of that loyalty, she says. And he says, and again, I must ask, is there something to forgive? Stalemate, she asks. He shrugs. I love it. I love this shit between these two. They are both, he is so unflinchingly loyal. It's so apparent in these moments. Right, right. <clears throat> and she shifts here, you know, talking talking about Duncan, mm-hmm. not so much as an individual, but as an example of a symptom of a problem amongst all of their men, all mm-hmm. of their soldiers, that this drinking could be a symptom of their, what she describes as homelessness, that yes. they've been uprooted, that they're on Arrakis now. And I, I think I think she gets at this to kind of point out that there is confusion among everyone, that these these dudes all feel uprooted. They they don't know who to trust here just as much as you know, the rest of the Atreides don't know who to trust. Uh, and it's starting to infect morale. Absolutely. They fear the Duke's failing them. And he just says, well, such talk from one of the men would be cause for, and she's like, oh, just stop. Like she, this is what I mean when I'm making the Belichick joke. She kind of pleads with him a little and he does not take the bait. My only intention (laughs) is to cure the disease. And he just says, the Duke has given me charge over these matters. In other words, this is not your purview and I'm not going to answer to you. That is ballsy. That is ballsy. And that's when she, again, is like, but but you have to understand my concern over these things, right? And that I have abilities that may assist you. <laughs> and, and dude, he, I love <laughs> the interpretations. Many have, there are many interpretations for your concern. <laughs> I love it. That's savagery. There are many interpretations. In other words, you might just be full of shit and you're saying all this. Right. Yeah. You might have lots of concerns and then maybe they don't mean anything in reality. <laughs> And, and I think it's important to note here that he believes beyond a reasonable doubt, it seems at this point, that he doesn't necessarily think she's a traitor, but he doesn't, he can't say she isn't. So he has to act on that assumption. He's acting on the assumption that she could be, even if he doesn't, if, even if he hasn't proven that she is. Right, right. Which is the perfect, I mean, to me, it's it the, makes total sense as a mintat. It's absolutely. just the most logical conclusion of like, I don't believe it is her, but I don't have enough evidence to say for sure that it's not her. So I still have to let that possibility remain open in my Correct. mind. Correct. Like and I what, have to investigate with that in and, mind. And what's brilliant about it, Matt, what's brilliant about it is there is zero emotion. There's zero tradition. There's zero relationship to consider because that's not why mentats are successful. 
I might go, well, I know Jessica. Like I, I, I've spent time with this woman. I understand that she clearly isn't clearly based on what your emotions, right? <laughs> right. That's all you're saying. And in, in, Hawat refuses to do it. He is just going by the facts. He's going by the facts, pure and simple, and he's not being distracted at all. Yeah. Yep. And this is when I love how Jessica shifts tactics here. And I, yes. I got to imagine this is, this is Benny Jesuit interrogation 101, where she even says, well, I have to shock him severely. He needs shaking <laughs> up something to break him from routine. And that's when she starts needling him with this idea of a threat to my son got past you right here in this house. Right. Who took that chance? <laughs> right, right. And that starts to shake him. Like, and it was her goal here in that moment to, to bring him out of his logical mind and set him into his emotional mind. So that's that she right. Could start digging in and it works. Now he was openly angry, betraying it in quickness of breathing, in dilation of nostrils, a steady stare. She saw a pulse beating at his temple. Mm. He is fucking pissed. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Yeah, it, it, it was, it, it, it was, yeah, they, they, they talk a lot, of, uh, quite a bit before that, but that is a great moment between these two. Uh, let's see. Where, whereabouts is that? I'm trying to zero in on that. How far is that from they've already, then you've already convicted me? Um, not too, too far away. Cause, uh, it's, it's not too oh, long I see after it. the, or to Paul. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got it. Okay. I was looking too far ahead. Right. That's great. And she just tries to say there is no traitor. There's something else here. Right. I, I know this moment, this, I remember like reading this and being like, oh fuck, Jessica's off. She's really She's off, off the mark. She's off the mark. Yep. Like and, where, yeah, because and it's that, it's that fucking piece of paper about the Lay's guns, which I, at this point where we're at in the book, I, I go, that's Harkonnen bullshit. Could, like, could be a I, red herring. Could be a red herring. Right. Exactly. Like I think that's a Harkonnen red herring to just add more confusion to the situation and even bring it to bring suspicion away from the very idea that there could be a traitor mm-hmm. um which we see jessica kind of walking down that path here of thinking well maybe it's not a traitor at all maybe it's just a a, a different type of attack that we're not even thinking about yet in much like in much like hawat's misstep under the scrutiny of the emotional attack from jessica jessica's misstep here is corrected by hawat when he's like you're wrong about this one actually they will not risk anything that illegal because the evidence is everywhere there is a traitor, period, he just says. And, and I like right. it. We're back to this. He, <laughs> Hawat has considered all this. He might not have considered the, the sort of jabs under the, hour, uh, under the armor or the low blows from her. But he just says, if you're innocent, you'll have my most abject apologies. In, in, in Matt, I believe that 100%. This I is too. not personal. That's why, he's, that's why Hawat is so good at his job because he does not, this is not personal to him. <laughs> exactly. And, and exactly. she, again, she gets, I, I love how she's spinning the wheel of, of ideas to get a weapon to find the chink in his armor. Right now I'm going to get philosophical with him. Let's try this angle. She thinks, right. <laughs> Where she's like, really, you know, we're just destroying the place in the person. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Before we get into that. No, no, that's, that's perfect. That's actually kind of where I wanted to go is, is I love how she brings up this idea of you and I, Thufir, of all those mm-hmm. who love the Duke are most ideally situated to destroy the other's place. And, you know, she talks mm-hmm. about how she could whisper things into the Duke's ear. You know, she's the one person that intimately close to him. 
and then she even says, I merely point out to you that someone is attacking us through the basic arrangement of our lives. It's clever, diabolical. <clears throat> I propose to negate this attack by so ordering our lives that there'll be no chinks for such barbs to enter. Right. And it's, I mean, it's essentially a long way of saying we need to clear the air between us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we are living in quiet suspicion of one another. And that could very well be part of the plan of attack against us. Right. And that's what makes this such a compelling discussion and argument because he is not interested in clearing anything. He just wants to know who the goddamn traitor is. And he can't sit across from her and just be convinced by her that she is not a traitor because there's not enough evidence to support that fact. He's not so so. That's why this is so his def. He's he's a, he's he's a brick wall. This guy, and that's what she's doing. She's saying, you know, we we have to clear. And you're right. Her her approach makes total sense to somebody that would respond with any emotional uh, content whatsoever. Your life is compounded. You, you know, you'd meet this with your own whispers, and he's like. She's like, no, 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 you're the whisper man, not me. <laughs> you're the whisper boy. You're, you're the secret You're the whisper lad. guy. I don't do the whisper, and that's you. And, and, and it gets into the, oh, you, you're, you're questioning my ability. And she starts talking about, I want, like this question of hers is, is it tips her hand a little, which is I want you to examine your own emotional vomit of this. And she says a bunch of other shit after that. But that, that tips her hand where she thinks he's being emotional and wants to, him to admit it. And he's doing that whole Dick Cheney argument for back in the day. I don't accept your premise, <laughs> right? It was exactly. the it was the you know the failure in Iraq. Can you can you comment on X Y Z? He's like, I don't accept your premise that we failed in Iraq. So I'm not even going to engage. Now I'm not even I'm not saying one's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the same idea. It's the same thought process, right? Because he's right. just like, you think that you're going to teach me my trade? <laughs> what? <laughs> what are we doing here? In, in it's it's interesting that we see a lot of quick answers from him in paragraphs from her. Right, right. He he because I think it's him. He's trying to be careful about not giving up too much of his own thought process here. Because again, like we've already been harping on, we, he can't rule out that she could in fact be the traitor. Mm-hmm. So he's not. He's trying to respond to her mm-hmm. and also keep as much of his own way of thinking about who the traitor could be or what the problem could yes. be. He's trying to guard that. Yes. Um, and, and dude, I also love the moment where she points out the finest mentats have a healthy respect for the error factor in their computations. Right. <laughs> and he agrees. Again, yeah. he's not getting emotional. It's so fascinating. It, we know that Jessica is completely formidable. We're not sure right. who Watt is other than the way he's talked about until we see him deal with her. He's formidable. Oh, absolutely. And it makes sense. <laughs> we don't get to see it until now. We don't get to see it until now. And, and that's what I like. I like that he's like, I never said that that wasn't the case. I, I'm here to destroy my Duke's enemies. I'm here to, to find them. That's what I do. He's like, but, but there's errors. He's like, of course. I know. That's why I'm sitting here and not giving you anything. Because that could be an error. It's, it's right. It's, he's kind of saying that in a sense. And, and I love this. I love, she's, she's great here. Drunken some of the men quarrels, they gossip, exchange. What's going on? Idleness yeah. no Why more, right? Don't try to draw my attention to make me simple matter appear mysterious. I love that. She's saying there's so much going on here and she's not wrong. And he's saying, it doesn't matter what's going on here. I'm here to find a traitor. I, I don't, there's nothing more simple than this. I, I won't, I won't be distracted. And I love that she just sits for a minute and stares at him. Like, Jesus, Louises, what is it with this guy? <laughs> and again, she starts resorting to more and more 
yes. kind of emotional jabs yes. at him. And it works that a moment, bit. It works. It, it does. She says, why have you never made full use of my abilities mm. in your service to the Duke? Do mm. you fear a rival for your position? And he glares at her. <laughs> I know some of the training they give you, Bene Gesserit. And he breaks off. She says, go ahead, say it. Bene Gesserit witches. <laughs> like, I know you yes. want to fucking spit in my face. And I know. And it's a mistake. That's his, that he makes a mistake here. He makes a mistake yeah. because he does get emotional. He does get personal here. And he says, I know something of the real training they give you. I believe that. He's, he's seen it come out in Paul. Uh, you exist only to serve. And that's when the shock like, must be severe. Exactly. She's, <laughs> she's trying to break him out of it. I love that. The shock must be severe and he's almost ready for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, so cunning and calculated. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and they get more into this. The truth, if I wish to destroy it, she kind of just says, it's that old adage, if I wanted you dead, you'd be dead. It, it's the question yeah. <laughs> we always have. It, it goes back to when we would discuss Battlestar Galactica. We would apply this logic to, if this Cylon wanted you, if this person was a Cylon, they had ample opportunity to destroy this vessel, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> if I wanted you dead, you would be dead. <laughs> and I like that. And no one could stop me. He registers this as a literal threat. And he starts reaching for a weapon under his tunic. <laughs> Dude, I also, uh, just a, a quick aside, totally off the topic. I love the idea of his like Batman utility belt with poison dart shooters. <laughs> just like under there. He's just like, how many gizmos and gadgets of death do you have on that fucking belt? <laughs> oh man. He's got about as many as Jessica has a roulette wheel of, of, of ways to attack this debate. Right. <laughs> He's like, I've got a ruler in here. I've got a bottle opener. I've got a poison dart gun. Got it all. And to be very clear, I'm not suggesting Hawada is more mentally capable than Jessica. In fact, he may not be, which is why he's smart to stick to the basic principles, to not get dragged into a philosophical debate where he's going to get trapped, right? He's he's being very cagey, which is smart. He doesn't want to get pulled into something that he's not prepared for. And I like that. I like that a lot. Let us pray violence shall never become necessary between us. To which he says, a worthy prayer. <laughs> so good. And, and that's when she so says, cagey. consider reason. Consider reason that this is what the Harkonnen wants, to pit us against each other. And that's when he goes, well, I guess we're a stalemate then. Back to the beginning. Yep. Uh, we've reset the conversation. We've reset the conversation. And that's when she's like, well, you know, the Duke's a great target, but what about Paul? I mean, the, the Duke, sure, attracts target, yeah, but one can possibly say from Paul's a better guard me. I tempt them, surely, but they must know the Bene Gesserit make difficult targets, and there's a better target, one whose duties create a necessary monstrous blind spot. You, you, <laughs> sir, you, Hawat, what if you're the target of this? Yeah, and that's when he's absolutely. like, this is when he pulls in Adama, and he's like, we're done here. He just goes to he goes to get up, and that's when she just goes because you know what I like about that because in suggesting he's the target, she's sort of saying you could be the guy. And as soon as it goes from we can discuss these things, we can discuss to you blaming me. I don't have anything more to say to you if you think I'm the traitor. I'm going to leave now because clearly, what are we talking? Why are we talking if you think I'm the traitor? Yeah, exactly. And this is when we get it, dude. The voice. Yeah. <laughs> Where she just 
shouts, I have not dismissed you through fear. And he just immediately sits back down. It's described as his muscles just betray him. Mm. He has no choice in it. He just falls back into his chair. (laughs) She smiled without mirth. She's had enough. She's had enough. She couldn't break the wall. Now she's resorting to, she's going, she get nasty. She getting Mel Benny Jezzeret nasty on him, right? Nasty. Getting getting the Benny Jezzeret elbow ready. Ooh, we're going off the top ropes with the super Benny Jezzeret elbow now, now. But uh, this is great. He, he's completely frothingly angry at this point. <laughs> that and also, I think, totally in shock. Like, yeah, absolutely. He's never... I think uh, one easy thing to forget in in reading this book is that as readers, our knowledge of of some of the people and some of you know like the Bene Gesserits, like we have as readers more knowledge of the Bene Gesserits than I think most other people in this universe. Like, I think you're like, right. Like most people in this universe, they are so like the Bene Gesserits are so secretive and guarded that they really know hardly anything other than that they are a school of thought training. <laughs> for women and that they are they have some powers of you know intuition like that's kind of all anybody knows about them the idea that they could just shout a command and you you just immediately follow it without your own willpower that Mm. is a massive shock to him and he's like i didn't think that was possible for anyone right i love i love all of these thoughts that run through his head this idea that his skin crawled at the memory of how she was controlling him. The hesitation, she could kill him easily. And he does not like that feeling. Does every human right. have this blind spot? Can any of us be ordered to action before we can resist? Who could stop a person with so much power? This is, this is, this is a mind, this is a life altering revelation for Hawat to experience yeah, exactly. the Bene Gesserit voice. Dude, and she just fucking hammers it home too. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's staring at her and you know, in disbelief really. And she says, "If I desired a puppet, the duke <laughs> would marry me. He might even think he did it of his own free will." Mm. <laughs> and what a way! Like she, ju- he has just experienced his own yes. will being completely overwritten. Yes. So he he knows that she means it. He knows she's capable of that. Absolutely. Now. The glimpse, the glove fist within the Benny Jesuit glove. The <laughs> Glimpse the fist within the Benjamin Glove, which is a great line. But um, I love how Hawat, still cagey, is, why aren't you destroying the Duke's enemies then? And that's when she's like, oh, okay, you want me to make a weakling out of him? A great response here. <laughs> forever, le- have him forever leaning on me. But, but this is a moment where he lets his guard down because he says, but with such power. Like he's really thinking, wow, with yeah. such power, the Duke would be safe. He truly believes this now. And that's when right, she's like, well, crazy. wait, well, wait a second now. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute. I'm fucking, I'm John Connor and you're the damn Terminator. I didn't even know this shit. Like, right, why right. aren't you doing this work? <laughs> and that's when she's like, we exist to serve. We don't want to, we don't want to, de- we will destroy ourselves. We will destroy right. ourselves if the Ben and start meddling overtly like this. Right. Well, because I mean, the very act of that kind of power, of using that kind of power would make you a target like that would then bring down destruction upon you because everybody would realize how fucking powerful you are i mean it's essentially like they have nukes and nobody knows it like there's no country on earth that has nukes without the rest of the world knowing it we all there's a there's an entire un you know committee of just the nuclear weapon holding countries like that is that is not a secret like everybody knows this it is part of this like arrangement in our world of you know mutually assured destruction the the wonderful world we live in yeah but 
the idea here is that in my opinion at least they essentially have atomics and nobody realizes they have atomics they are really holding that back right it it another comparison i like to use is if i go back to like a, a almost a vampire comp- comparison in the way that the uh, that the, that white wolf presented them which is we must hide ourselves from the humans because even though any one of us could control dozens of humans maybe even our own city if we wanted to we're, there's a hundred thousand to one. If they decide right. we're done, we're done. All the Bene Gesserit power in the world isn't going to stop the weight of the Imperium. They'll be gone. Right. They'll be eradicated. And that's the fear that probably keeps the Bene Gesserit in line. And that's why they're so awesome because they're smart enough to know, you know, don't be on, we, we've discussed this in a chapter before. Don't be on top of the mountain. Don't be on top of the mountain. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and that's, if you go around just, overtly controlling dukes of major houses in the Landshrod, it's going to become a problem. Very quickly. You will be a target. Yep. (laughs) But uh, this gets to, and she thought, and he thought she has great powers, yes, but would these not make her an even more formidable tool for the Harkonnens? Of course, a legitimate thought. Right. Absolutely. Mm. And And to think that if she has that power and that power could be coerced by an outside force. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Suspicious. This is excellent right here. The Duke could be destroyed as quickly by his friends as his enemies, she said. I trust now you'll get to the bottom of this suspicion and remove it. Again, at one point she said, your loyalty to the Duke is, is, is keeping this pleasant because she knows how loyal he is. And he says, if it proves baseless, if, she sneered, if, he said, you are tenacious, <laughs> cautious, <laughs> he says, and aware of the error factor. Again, going I- back to that. I love that line from him because I, I, at least my interpretation of it is, is that was a bit of a, like, he gives her that. Like, that's a little bit of like, you know what? Yes, I will be aware of the error factor because mm-hmm. she's the one who brought that up initially. Yes. Um, like, that's a bit of a concession of like, yes, I'm not giving in to you entirely and I still can't write you off the list entirely, but I will be aware of the error factor such as you pointed out. Right, and when and, and get to go back to that, when she did, he was like, "Of course, of course not." And in in you're right. That's that's the tiniest of all of branches because he agreed with her earlier. Exactly. He agreed with her in a more contemptible way because he was like, "How fucking dare you?" I understand the error factor, but now it's he is saying it in a in a more olive branch type of way. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm. and dude, this ominous last line she gives him. <laughs> Then I'll pose another question for you. What does it mean to you that you stand before another human, that you are bound and helpless and the other human holds a knife at your throat, yet this other human refrains from killing you, frees you from your bonds, and gives you the knife to use as you will? Mm. <laughs> just just lets that sit with him. It's it's pretty amazing. And, and this is one of the more... Uh, this is There's a bit of irony here that I like. He thinks... I am the bull and she the matador, Hawa thought. He withdrew his hand from his weapon, glanced at the sweat glistening on his empty palm because he considered maybe shooting her right there, but he doesn't. But but I like that because I would have argued that she was the bull and he was the matador. He was kind of olaying her the whole time until the very <laughs> right. end where he realizes that he is being emotional here and, he's need, right. he, he, and he recognizes that and he stops. There's no, yeah. there's no yeah. cause to shoot her. That him considering the weapon under his tunic, the deadly poison weapon under his tunic, and considering the bull and the in the in the Duke's father and all of that jazz, makes him realize that 
on the surface, although he may have been the matador in my eyes, that to consider the weapon and the fact that he even was reaching for it makes him realize that he was about to make a baseless accusation and carry out execution, right? That's not a mentat move. That's a bad move. It's a terrible move. And he realizes it and he's like, wow, I'm, I'm sort of becoming the emotional bull to her matador as she, as she tricks and thrusts and exhausts, right? <laughs> That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And her also just reminding him of the power she has and is choosing not to use. Yep. Supreme adoration for the lady, admiration for the lady Jessica he has in this moment. He, <laughs> exactly. He respects her now more than ever. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once you realize a person in your life can do that to you. Yep. My God. And, and I think he probably secretly does not suspect her. And I think that we don't get a chance because of what happens next to know that. But, but I do like that she, that he now has a profound sense of admiration for her, that he doesn't let his ego get in the way, that he admires what she's capable of. And one of the things we talked about in the beginning of the book was this idea about Hawat and retiring and missing something and feeling old and being older and, and perhaps his skill set being doubted. And now he's very motivated because her last mo- words are now we'll see some proper action. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, it cl- essentially, I interpreted the close of this chapter with her as her essentially driving the point home of you should trust me because I could kill you and I'm not. And like, him. That's right. Right. And I could make him a puppet. Exactly. Yep. And I think that's important. And in the, in, in, I'm really curious. I'm very curious, and I don't remember, but I'm very curious as to what Hawat's going to think of this now, right? What do you mean? Because, well, because so much of his mindset was, it's Jessica, it's probably Jessica. I need to falsify this. Walking right. away now, he really, I doubt he really thinks it is. Yeah. Which no, means, I agree. I, which I, means I think watch out everyone else if Hawat's on your trail. <laughs> <laughs> he's implacable. Yeah. He's implacable. <laughs> right? Love it. Well. Should we move on to our, our yeah, short final a, chapter? Just a couple of pages here, and we'll wrap up this episode. Yes, sir. All right. So this we chapter are... Be- nope, go ahead. I was going to say, this is uh, chapter 18, and uh, it begins with... Do you wrestle with dreams? Do you contend with shadows? Do you move in a kind of sleep? Time has slipped away. Your life is stolen. You tarried with trifles, <laughs> victim of your folly. Dirge for Jameis on the funeral plane from Songs of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Mm. Uh, your for, life is stolen. First word, uh, uh, b- beyond our intro, the first word is Lado. <laughs> after that, after <laughs> yeah. that introduction, I mean, that's a poignant, that's a poignant sort of meta statement by Frank Herbert. Lado stood in the foyer of his house, <laughs> and uh, boy, this is uh, this is tough. This is a this is a tough moment in this book. Dude, we this yeah, is this it. This is it for Lado. Shock. This is it for yeah. Lado. It's utterly shocking. He gets this mysterious mo- note that reads: "A column of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night." There's no signature. He considers what it means. He pushes the paper into his pocket, and uh, you know, there's been disquieting session with Hawa. A report on a meeting with Jessica. He, he's wondering about all this stuff, right? And dude, what's so tragic about this chapter yes. for me is this right here. 
Should I waken Jessica? He wondered. There's no reason to play the secrecy game with her any longer. Or is there? Mm. But, you know, and he even goes on to say, I was wrong not to take Jessica into my confidence from the first. I must do it now before more damage is done. In how, ah, he, in how he feels a sense of peace in saying that. The decision made him feel better. And he actually starts right. to hurry down the halls. Exactly. Because he wants to make it right with her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wants her to know that he never actually suspected her. And some of the description here is fantastic. I love this. And, and he's, he, he, this, he moves down the service passage. The inadequate illumination. There are these suspensers. So imagine this hallway. Small suspensers. Eight meters between them are these dim lights. So there's these, you would imagine almost like these columns of darkness, or, or it might be more apt to say small columns of light that he keeps appearing in as he walks down this long hallway. Dark stone absorbing the light. You know, this isn't a brightly lit room. This is a dark room on top of poor illumination. And that's when he sees the first dull blob stretching across the floor appeared out of gloom ahead he sees a body he sees a body right <laughs> a body laying there and we come to see that it is tuek no we hardly tuek. knew you <laughs> you only got to be cool for like five minutes and he's dead and he uh, thinks so oh boy so leto continues to push down the hall hand on the belt for the shield kinjal poised and there's another blob this one's still moving no not mapes mapes too stuck in the back literally both of them stabbed in the fucking back stabbed in the back brutal he touched her shoulder shoo she gasped killed god sent get to escape my lady and she dies right there and now leto's mind is racing did she mean to she that they killed a guard and Tuik had just got sent for him. What's going on? And a sixth sense warned him. He flashed a hand towards the shield switch too late. A numbing shock slammed his arm aside. He felt pain there, saw a dart protruding from the sleeve, sensed paralysis spreading from it up his arm. It took an agonizing effort to lift his hand and look down the passage, his head and lift to look down the passage. Yue stood in the open door of the generator room. His face reflected yellow from the light of a single, brighter suspenser above the door. There was stillness from the room behind him. No sound of generators. Yue, Leto thought. He sabotaged the house generators. Were wide open. What a fucking sinking feeling. It has begun. There's so many moments of sinking feelings in these couple of pages here. And Yue explains it to him. What does Yue say here? (laughs) <laughs> well this is where he he starts to to talk to him about the actual you know the way the poison is going to work and the you know the limitations of it mm-hmm. um i want to find that you know this is this is actually it right here be quiet please my poor duke you haven't much time that Oof. peg tooth i put in your mouth after the tumble at narcol that tooth must be replaced in a moment i'll render you unconscious and replace that tooth and we learn that it's going to be an exact duplicate It'll escape the usual detectors, even a fast scanning. But if you bite down hard on it, the cover crushes. Then when you expel your breath sharply, you fill the air around you with a poison gas most deadly. And this is when we learn that Yue, even in the moment of his betrayal, even though he follows through with the Harkonnen plot to destroy them, he is committed (laughs) 
to killing the Baron Harkonnen mm-hmm. himself as well. He wants him dead. He knows he can't reverse this plan. He knows he can't back out of it, but he can at least empower the Duke to shoot poison in his fucking face. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of love it. Not it's awesome. Lie. It's awesome. And that's when he says he, he made a bargain with the Baron. He talks about, uh, I'll know. When I look at the Baron, I will know, but I will never injure his presence without the price. You're the price, my poor Duke, and I'll know when I see him. My poor Wana taught me many things, and one is to see certainty of truth when the stress is great. I cannot do it always, but when I see the Baron, then I will know. All he's doing is giving, is, is using the intensity of the situation by presenting the Duke to the Baron to be able to read the Baron's face to know Wana's fate, period. That's what he's going to gain. Right. He needs to know whether she's alive or dead. Mm. Yep. And he knows. He's like, he'll gloat. He'll boast. And that's when you'll have your opportunity. My precious Duke, remember this tooth. It will be all that remains to you. And Leidos says, refuse? Oh, no, you mustn't refuse. Because in return for this small service, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to save your son and your woman. No other can do it. They can be removed to a place where no Harkonnen can reach them. And he says, I'm going to make them appear dead. Oh, I love this. By secreting them among people who draw a knife at hearing the Harkonnen name. Ah. Who hate the Harkonnen so much they'll burn a chair in which a Harkonnen has sat. <laughs> Salt the ground over which a Harkonnen has walked. Oh, it's a, we already know who he's talking Who could about. that be? <laughs> the Fremen? Ah. <laughs> hunch. My hunch says. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, and that description of he sensed distant tugging the Duke. Yes. Ugh, that's so uh. haunting. That's such a haunting sentence. Well, and also just the, the whole feeling of him being trapped within his body and unable to mm-hmm. move, like this paralysis that seeps over him. It is yeah. described in excruciating detail. In excruciatingly simple, effective detail. Uh, that, you, that he just, uh, and, and the idea that his whole life has now been reduced to, he's not dead, he's paralyzed, and he knows that his time is over, but it's not over yet. Like, and that's kind of, it's almost an interesting, right. And it's an interesting way of summarizing where the Duke has been this entire time that in the back of his mind, he's already been having these death thoughts. Like he's already been living what he thinks is, you know, the end of my timeline is coming. I'm already heading towards it. It's inescapable. And now we get a microcosm of that, of he is paralyzed knowing the end is coming, but he gets this one, like what I love about this is UA the traitor is the one person who gives him this opportunity to avenge himself and that he will save his wife and son. Like, yes, I've betrayed you, but I'm also going to give you the best thing I can give you at least for, you know, it, with all, with all this terrible shit happening, I'm going to at least do you this. He, cause he's conflicted. Of course he's treacherous, but he's conflicted. He's yeah, a person. He's a per- it shows he's a person, right? And I still believe, you know, and why I, I, I find UA to be such a tragic figure is I believe him in that he never wanted to do this at all, doesn't want the Duke to come to harm, doesn't want of any of them not. to come of to course. harm. But just his hand has been compelled. He can't, and, and he's, he can't and say no. He, he's, he's, it's his, again, it's, it's, it's something the book is very good at doing. It's showing us everyone's fatal flaw. And UA's fatal flaw is Wana. And, 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 and that's his weakness. And what we learn in this world is your weakness will be applied against you unto your right. end or other people's ends, but that's what's going to happen. Leto had his weaknesses. Yue has his weaknesses, right? We've, we've seen these and, and they will be applied in, in use, especially if you have enemies, they will attempt to use them as best they can. 
and Yue is, is is a sad patsy because the Duke had an angle, uh, the Baron Harkonnen had an angle on him, and he and he plied it against him brutally. Oh, and it has happened. It has happened. But I love I love the ending of this where he's saying, yes. "Remember the tooth, the tooth," because he knows that paralytic agent that he's hit him with is is fading. He's it's fading working. out. Yep. But he's got to tell him <laughs> the, the tooth, sh- the tooth, the shadowy hall narrowed to a pinpoint with UA's purple lips centered in it. <laughs> Jeez, oh, Louise. So wow. So brutal, though. You know, even though the Duke is technically alive, like you get that feeling of like this is it. That's like, it. Th- this That's he's horrible. Done. Like That's th- horrible. there's nothing else to be done for him. Uh, a man beyond saving. Yep, without a doubt. Brutal end. What a fucking cliffhanger we Ooh, end on this baby. time, baby. All right, <laughs> it's getting wild on Arrakis. Getting wild. Damn. Damn. Good stuff. Damn. Damn. Good stuff. That was uh, <laughs> that was a good discussion. Excellent. That was fun. All right. So Shit. next time for episode five, we're going to be discussing chapter nineteen through twenty-two. Okay, which is the end of book one. Yes. And chapter nineteen reads: There shall be a uh, a sign. Oh, there should be a science of discontent. In chapter twenty-two, reads: O seas of Caladan, O people of Duke Leto. So that's nineteen to twenty-two. End of book one. What are the what are the number then, of page numbers in your book, Matt? I'm uh, in yeah. my in my hardcover series intro by Neil Gaiman. It's two o five through two fifty-three. All right, in my paperback Penguin edition, it is two sixty-three through three twenty-four. Excellent. We're about twenty-five percent through, buddy. Yes, ah, getting through this baby. That was excellent. That was a uh, what a what a great. It, 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 I love that so much. Of you, you could have written. You could you could have taken that first chapter we did and used that to describe the death of Leto and made it this cinematic fight sequence. No need, <laughs> no need. And and it and it highlights. And this is something I think George R. R. Martin is so good at. This this way you can unceremoniously just dispatch someone. Right, because right. everything else that's been built up around it is of interest. Not that Leto isn't; he is, but it's, but it's always been teased at, <laughs> right? It's the book has sort of been telling you prepare for this moment. And what's so good about this, much like in real life, you're never quite prepared, right? Damn, poor Leto. That's true. He's gone, and poor Leto, and uh, he's in a bad spot. He's in a bad spot. All right, yeah. Well, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode. We look forward to the next one. And um, we'll be dropping that one uh, most likely in a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, again, that'll be chapters 19 through 22. And that will be uh, our next episode, which will be our fifth episode, Matthew. Yes. Uh, All right. Looking well, forward to it. Yes. Thank you guys very much. That was a ton of fun. We will see you next time. You've been listening to Mind Killer. A Dune podcast by LSG Media. New episodes drop on the second and last Friday of the month. Visit us online at libertystreetgeek.net. That's libertystreetgeek.net.